are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory, glory forever. Hey, welcome back everybody to our Pentecost retreat and we are picking up with our reading of Olivier Clement's work called The Three Prayers. And for the sake of this retreat, Tyler's Diaconate Retreat, uh, we are focusing simply on the second prayer in the book, O Heavenly King, and uh, is focused upon the Holy Spirit and on Pentecost. And we got through about three paragraphs last night, not as much as I had imagined that we would. Uh, I had greater aspirations, but we're picking up at the bottom of page 53. O Heavenly King, the Comforter, very bottom of the page. And for those who weren't here last night, we tried to do this as a kind of group Lexio Divina. So we'll read through a paragraph and then open it up for comments, questions, discussion. And uh, it slows us down, but I think it allows for a richer reading of the text. And so he begins, O heavenly King, the Comforter. In the spirit, God transcends his own transcendence according to a loving trans-descendence, I think that's how you say that, uh, if I may coin an expression. Though he is altogether inaccessible, God gives himself as a gift, becoming altogether one whose existence we might partake. So it's an interesting thing that Clement does here, that uh, he says that God transcends his own transcendence, that he s- steps out of himself, as it were, into our world, into our life, in order that we might be drawn into it, in order that we might experience it, uh, not in an abstract way, but really and truly, that we might begin to participate in God's own existence. And again, I think we talked a lot last night about how often we lose sight of the grandeur of our faith and our dignity, our destiny in Christ, and in particular through being temples of the Holy Spirit, and again, here, Clement is trying to unpack this for us, for us that uh, God, uh, in his very essence, in his very being, steps, as it were, steps away from himself, if one can say that, uh, in order to enter into our life, into our hearts, and to share that life with us. As Vladimir Losky would say, God crosses the boundary of his transcendence in the Holy Spirit through whom and in whom the Logos, the Word, continually manifests himself through a multitude of expressions of wisdom and prophecy as the light that enlightens every man coming into the world. It is the same Spirit through whom and in whom the Word continues to be made flesh 
for the incarnation of the word is affected through the spirit and through the lucid and powerful freedom of the virgin for the spirit cannot be separated from freedom. So we often will th see things in a linear, linear fashion, historically. Uh, even something such as the incarnation, this is something that took place 2,000 years ago, which is true. But uh, there is a meta-historical aspect to the, uh, to the incarnation, that God manifests himself to us constantly and <coughs> continuously, in particular, through the movement and action of the spirit. And so it is as if the incarnation is taking a place again and again in our life. God coming into our life, taking upon himself our flesh, is something that takes place moment by moment now that we are temples of God the Most High. And we receive our Lord in the Holy Eucharist. We become one with him. Body, blood, soul, and divinity. Nothing is withheld from us. And his word continues to speak to our hearts, to each individual person in the way that he or she needs. There continues to be prophetic words that are spoken to the church. Sometimes we don't hear them because they are drowned out by the din of the noise of the world. Uh, but nonetheless, the, that prophetic word, the word that we need to hear, our generation needs to hear, that we might manifest the gospel fully, is continually being spoken to us. And not simply through priest in the pulpit, it can be the person who's sitting right in front of us, right before our, our faces who we don't know, perhaps, and yet in and through them, God manifests a truth to us or reveals something about our own hearts. Perhaps we look at another person and judge them harshly because of their looks or how they speak. And our, that encounter is prophetic in the sense that it reveals our, our pride, our lack of humility, where we need to undergo repentance and conversion. Or someone will pick up something uh, as a priest, uh, as I've mentioned often within these groups. One of the reasons I moved to the group Lexio Divina is that it's transformed my reading of the ancient fathers that for years I've read them over and over again and led groups on them over and over again, 30 years. But each time I've gone through them, my reading of them has broadened and deepened precisely because of the insights, comments, and questions of those within the group. And also the ways that will, people will call me to task if I overgeneralize. Some, sometimes something from a text will strike me so beautiful that it captures something of the essence of what it is to be a Christian, I'll overstate it. And somebody will say, well, maybe, maybe that's a little too much. W wouldn't you also say this? And so the group checks me when perhaps enthusiasm would pull me further than what the, the author would intend. And so in all these ways, the, the spirit is, is very much active in our life. And again, God's word is being made manifest to us from moment to moment. And uh, he, he closes this paragraph by emphasizing freedom. Uh, you know, often I'm hit by questions, most of all by my mom, uh, about the, the evil within the world. And as you know, watching the news is something that agitates. And every day you hear something more violent and more heinous happening. And one of her constant questions to me is, why is God letting this happen? 
or when is God coming is her real question. When is, when is he going to come and do something? And uh, part of the response always has to be that love is received in freedom, that uh, it cannot be something that is compelled, that it has to be something that is received. It's offered unconditionally, but it has to be taken up and embraced, that God is not a despot. He's, God is not a fascist. And this is why he does not call down, as we talked about last night, fire from heaven to consume his enemies, that it's always through the, the, the love of the cross, the self-emptying love that he would conquer hearts, not through willfulness. And this is part of our struggle as human beings. We often seek to, uh, our will to power can be very strong. We seek to assert ourselves and we're taught to do that from the earliest years of our life, not in the sense of making use of the gifts and the abilities that God has given to us, but really to assert ourselves aggressively to take what we want, to gain what we feel that we need within this life to make us happy, often outside of the perspective of the needs of those in our midst. So we become very self-absorbed, again, driven by the ego rather than driven by the love of Christ. One of the passages from St. Paul that I, I think is, uh, is most important to remember uh, struck me a few years ago when I came across somebody laying it out specifically. When Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. It's a, in the Greek, it's actually, it's no longer I who live I. And the Greek word is ego. It's no longer I who live I, but Christ who lives within me. So embracing this life means our willingness to set aside the self that is directed by sin or our own desire for self-satisfaction, our appetites, rather than the love of God or rather than the mind of Christ. And so Paul says he's reached this point where it's no longer I who live I, that self has been set aside. Now we know for Paul that was not an easy thing uh, we often, whether it's in our iconography or painting, present him in a particular way where, you know, he looks very strong and, and stern, typically. But, you know, Paul, when he was preaching, probably had a couple teeth knocked out and covered with bruises and hair yanked out and, you know, shipwrecked multiple times. He, he received the lash. Partially blind. Partially blind. And so... You know, he went through all these experiences that humbled him. He didn't uh, strive to create this humility for himself, this dying to self. It was rather through all these experiences that he went through that he had to let go of any illusion of power, of strength, and cling only to the grace of God. And so humbled by all these realities, he has this capacity to be... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, when you can see through something. I'm sorry. Transparent. Transparent. Gosh, I need coffee. I'm sorry, folks. Uh, transparent, that what people would see in him or what they would hear in his words would not be his own, his own judgment. It's what has been revealed to him. And he's very strong about this, that if anybody should come preaching a gospel other than what we've preached, you know, let him be anathema. 
that you're being deluded by being drawn along this false path. Hold only to what has been revealed to, to us by Christ. And so f- a freedom is necessary, but true freedom that is freed from the moorings of our ego. Any comments, questions? Yes. Um, you were talking about words and what words mean, you know, mm-hmm. Often approach things in, in uh, episodic fashions, whether it's specific ascetic disciplines, fasting, we'll do it every once in a while rather than having it a regular part of our life. But with repentance in particular, I think we've done this where it's tied to, in a kind of legalistic, moralistic fashion, we commit a particular sin, we repent, and we go to confession. And that's certainly part of our, our life. But we've lost this sense of repentance as being a constant turning toward God, moving ever more deeply into the love of Christ. And that means that we begin to develop a hatred for sin that is equal to the love for God. And that we not only turn away from the sin, but everything that, every attachment that we have, and we mentioned this last night, every attachment that could potentially lead us into sin, So the deeper, more complete our repentance, this change of mind becomes, the less attractive those things become for us and the more attractive life in Christ comes for us, where we are no longer attached to the things that could possibly pull us away from the the full experience of this love. And that, that means a radical transformation of how we live, that we so often want to have one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom and treating repentance as this episodic thing, it might be our simply going to confession to relieve the psychological burden there, the stress, the anxiety, the sense of shame that sometimes sin will bring to us. And we feel a kind of lightness of being after uh, confession, but that does not necessarily translate into a life of repentance which immediately acknowledges that poverty, moves toward God in order to know the joy of being united to him once again, but to enter into the fray more deeply and with more resolve not to fall into that sin again. And so when we limit these words uh, in the way that we do, I think part of that's a psychological and spiritual resistance 
to living the kind of life that we've called to because there's so many things that we are attracted to in the world. We like the fact that we can turn to so many things to find consolation, distraction, when life weighs upon us heavily, when we experience great crosses or trials, we will gravitate towards material goods, certain relationships, television, movies, food, alcohol, drugs, whatever it might be, rather than to Christ. And so we can begin to uh, abuse the sacrament in the sense that it has nothing to do with that relationship with, with God, so much as it does with, again, an emotional relief for us. It has to be about our turning toward Christ. Yes? I was say, with the theme of freedom to say yes or no to God, I don't know if anyone's read uh, The Brothers, the Grand Inquisitor mm -hmm. uh, poem. The theme was Christ in the desert. And he was saying, what is, when the devil comes to him and says, you know, turn these stones into bread or mm -hmm. throw yourself from a building and mm -hmm. people will fall down and worship you. But he said, what is love that's bought by a loaf of bread? Mm -hmm. And so we were talking yesterday about, uh, you know, oh, blessed fall that won us such mm -hmm. a great savior. Right. Uh, you know, if, if that had not happened, we would not have that consciousness. There would be no, if there was no suffering, there would be no context mm -hmm. or freedom for us to say yes, because there would be no possibility to say no right. to God. And uh, through man, sin entered the world, the whole cosmos, but through the God-man, uh, everyone, you know, we mentioned Eucharistic mm -hmm. beings through receiving divinity, literally, mm -hmm. through communion. Uh, human beings and, and therefore the whole cosmos is being divinized and recapitulated back into right. to Christ. And that's really at the heart of our theology, our right. theology. And the more amazing thing that it's, we're, we're, it's drawn into us. If the yep. kingdom of God dwells within us, then everything about creation itself that is redeemed is something that we participate in in this radical way. And he, he addresses that further along in the text that we often, you know, in the world, even the, with space, space exploration, there's this fascination with it, the unknown or the beauty of it, which is natural and that we would want to explore that. But uh, what it is that we come to experience in and through faith, the purity of heart, allows us to enter into that reality in a way that no person, no matter how far they travel, could enter. We enter into the very mysteries of God himself, the creator of the universe. This is what is made possible for us. And uh, yeah, when you see it in certain saints where there's a manifestation within them that is something that is supernatural, that elevates them about, you know, from the, the norm. And that little story from the Desert Fathers where the father says, or where the elder says, why not become all fire? And his fingertips become lanterns of fire. And it reveals to this young monk that we are called to something more than natural virtue or more than being good people or keeping a role, a prayer role. What we are called to become is fire, to be so wholly consumed by the Spirit of God that we become love. That, that's our, our destiny. Yeah, even as, as rational beings created in the image of God, we participate in creation, even through just our perception right. of creation. Right, right, very good. 
everybody who's listening by podcast, I'm not I'm in an iron lung. That's our, <laughs> that's our, our coffee pot <laughs> percolating. <laughs> Just slightly distracting. <laughs> okay. We are in the second paragraph, correct? On 54. This is why when we say spirit of truth, or rather of the truth, we're not referring to a notion or a set of concepts or a system of some sort. There are many, so many of those, but to someone who told us that he was, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And within this one who is the true one, the faithful one, the truthful one, the words way and life seem to refer especially to the Holy Spirit. And so he, he's drawing our attention to the, the things that Christ himself said about himself uh, that already point us to the presence and action of the Spirit. That there's no part of the Trinity that is not present and that does not act in anything that has been revealed to us. And that includes the Eucharist, the cross, the presence of the Trinity is there. And, uh, but we can see the specific action uh, Clement tells us here in, in these particular words, way, truth, and life, where there is this guiding, this directing that takes place. And even it is in John's Gospel where he says there's so much more that could be written that uh, cannot be put in books, that, that, that it is going to be the Spirit that guides us into the fullness of the truth along the way. The truth, the revelation in which the truth about God and the truth about man cannot be separated is the word incarnate, God made man. He is the one whose presence the Spirit imparts to us in the sacraments, the mysteries of the church. Within the church, which is itself the mystery of the risen one, the sacrament of the resurrection through the grace of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is active in all these things from the incarnation on and allows this reality to be, again, a constant experience for us as human beings. You know, um, it's, it's not as though Christ remained present from his incarnation to the ascension, that he continues to be radically present to us, again, far above and beyond how he was to the apostles and disciples now in and through the church, his body, animated by the Spirit, and present to all of us in and through the sacraments, but most of all uh, as being made temples of the Holy Spirit within, within our own hearts. We don't have to go to the deserts of Egypt to be able to experience the, this presence of God in the depth of silence. All we need is silence and to be able to listen to what God says to us in the midst of it. Christ journeys with those on their way to Emmaus, but they do not recognize him. And yet his words born upon his breath make their hearts burn within them. At the breaking of the Eucharistic bread, he reveals himself and at once is gone from their sight. Henceforth, he can be present only in the Holy Spirit. That is why the church, the body of Christ, is also the temple of the Holy Spirit in Christ, the church is the church of the Holy Spirit. 
So an interesting way of, of looking at the church. We have a tendency to feel comfortable more with boundaries. That's how we understand things, when there are limits and we can wrap our mind around, around it. But what Clement is telling us is that what we experience through the action of the, of the Holy Spirit is Christ's continued presence within the world, but within each and every one of us. And that the body of Christ, his body, the church, is animated in particular by the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you know, when the church is run like a corporation or a business, and when uh, the hierarchical structure is used in such a way, when it's manipulated and used for power, it is as far away from Christ as one could possibly be. And yet there's often this struggle throughout history where there has been this view of the church of engaging in worldly affairs, even in worldly battles. And, uh, you know, the collection of material goods, focus on that to the ex extreme. Uh, cardinals being called princes of the church. I think I mentioned this in a group. I was surprised as a young Catholic when Bevilacqua, who was Bishop of Pittsburgh, was made Cardinal of Philadelphia in the Latin Rite. And for two weeks leading up to when he was going to be made Cardinal, there were these uh, commercials on television, you know, to watch it, watch it live. Uh, uh, Anthony Bevilacqua, Prince of the Church. And there was just something about that that made me a little uncomfortable uh, because of what we associate worldly prince, princes with, power, wealth, this a kind of authority that can be despotic, can be oppressive. And the image that we are call, called to manifest to the world, and especially those who are given that responsibility, is shepherd. One who, who knows, and this is why Pope Francis says, to smell like your sheep, that you have to be one who knows them by name, knows their particular trials and struggles, and does more than that, that you take them upon yourself, not in an abstract way, but as fully as one can on a spiritual and mystical level. So the bishop is responsible not only for the Catholics in his diocese, but for every individual, every person within his diocese, spiritually, that he's to be shepherd to them all. And you know, the image of the good shepherd in, you know, Again, people, whether it's in icons or paintings, often sanitize that, and every, it's a beloved image for, for Christians. But you know, to be a shepherd was a very difficult thing, and it did mean laying one's down, life down for the flock. Uh, they were often the victim of, of raiders. They had to know how to protect. That's, the big staff wasn't to help them walk along. It was to help to fight off wild beasts that would threaten the flock or, uh, you know, raiders who were, were trying to, to steal them. And you remember when Christ says, I am the gate, I am the door to the sheepfold, that in reality is what shepherds did, that they would gather their flock into like a niche within a, a cliff and they, they would lay their body down. So for a shepherd to get out, they would have to walk over them and for somebody to come in, they would have to walk over his body, like over my dead body, will you get 
to the, this flock. It was, this was the reason that they did that. But when you know, a sheep would get lost, uh, even when they could hear the voice, they couldn't often make their way back because they were so terrified. And all they would do was bleat. And this would often bring the shepherd to them. But the shepherd would have to go and pick them up. And you know, so the image of the sheep around the shoulders. But again, we sort of sanitize that, that an animal that is terrified is not going to like gently hang around your, uh, around your shoulders. That the sheep would often be biting at the hands of the shepherd. Uh, they would lose control of their bowels, you know, and things like that. And so this is... You know, this is the, the shepherds were these very tough and hardened figures that, again, uh, were called upon to sometimes the greatest of sacrifices. Uh, and this is to be the image of those who guide the, the flock of Christ and would look upon, like the, the shepherds of our day, one would imagine would look upon their sheep with the same kind of of mourning that Christ did. You know, a couple of times where he says he's moved uh, to his very depths, the gospel tells us. The English really doesn't pick it up really well. But the, the, the word is that he's moved to his bowels, that he sh shakes as he looks out upon the people as sheep without a shepherd. And the, greatest, the, the closest image one uh, Scripture scholars said it's like a, a horse snorting. Have you ever seen that? Where their whole, all the muscles sh shake. That this is what <coughs> happens to Christ when he looks out at the crowd, but also when he comes to the tomb of Lazarus, when he confronts death head on and he weeps. But the same word there is used, that he's moved to his depths when he sees the, the mourning crowd morning crowds uh, that he's shaken to the very sh shaken to the very depths of his being over what sin does to us the the weight and the consequence of it death and it's at this point that he's already moving closer to Calvary the weight and the darkness the burden of the world's sin is already beginning to rest upon him in fact anytime a miracle we often lose sight of this too anytime a miracle is performed that there, or forgiveness is offered, where do we think that goes? You know, that it sort of just disappears into thin air, or is it being taken upon him? The great image of that is when the woman comes up in the crowd and she touches the hem of his garment. And he says, who, who touched me? I felt power go out of me. That, you know, her reaching out in faith is something that is felt by him tangibly. And so she's healed by it. But again, this is something that should be the model for our shepherds. So attuned uh, to the need of others uh, and so moved by the suffering and sorrows of others that they have this similar kind of experience within their hearts. Any comments or questions? I thought I saw a hand. Mm -hmm. in the in the arch diocese with the block and she said that they were told when they started working 
engage in the conversation. If you saw him in the elevator, don't start talking to him. Mm-hmm. Um, if he talks to you, you may only answer his questions, but I thought to myself. No way, yeah. So that kind of touches upon what you're saying how the church has sometimes um, <coughs> kind of gone down this path of, you know, you know, status that um, at times also gets snuffed out. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think in some ways that exists in, in all of us that when we reach this level where we feel that we've emptied ourselves out. You know, those who are in positions of authority can create little mechanisms to protect themselves, like as you just mentioned. But I think when we have poured ourselves out through the day, we've worked hard or we've responded to, you know, everybody's need. And nobody, as a priest, nobody knows the, how many appointments you have during the course of a day. They're the one. So when they come in, if you're late or, you know, you, you have to be on no matter what. But you can go through days like that where you, you pour yourself out and then something happens. And there is a part of us that will want to shrink back from it. No, you know, the phone rings. Should I just let it ring, go to the machine, or should I pick it up? And uh, it can be difficult. The place where I lived before, we had perpetual adoration. And we put in, you know, uh, an emergency button so people could call priests in the middle of the night and for the first six years that we had it was directed to my room every night which probably wasn't a good thing uh but uh so it was like the first night we had night adoration and lo and behold the phone rings like at one in the morning (laughs) you know i'm dragging and uh, so I answer the phone, and it's one of the students, and he says, this other student isn't feeling well. And I said, okay, you know, don't worry about it. He could go home. He doesn't have to stay here. And he says, no, he's really sick. And I said, well, what's going on with him? And he said, well, I don't know. He's just not feeling well. And I said, well, you know, if you can take him home and not worry about it, I'll come down and repose a second. <laughs> and he says, he thinks he needs to be driven. So I, you know, I just, you know, begrudgingly got on my clothes and everything went down and got the car out and drove him back to Carnegie Mellon. And I thought, oh, is, is this is how it's gonna be with the phone ringing at night, you know, and me getting up every night. And it turns out that during the middle of the night, he's a bright guy, he got on one of those medical sites and self-diagnosed himself. And it turned out he had a collapsed lung. And so in my lack of generosity, I was basically saying, you know, can't you just walk this guy home <laughs> who had a collapsed, collapsed lung? So there, there's always that part of us, I think, when we feel that we've, ex- we've spent everything that does not trust that God will provide the grace that is needed. And I'm not saying we should never have any boundaries at all and sometimes we we need to get our rest but there are a lot of times it's because of our unwillingness to love or our selfishness that we don't respond or don't want to respond unless pushed and um, and so I think what is being said here by Clement again is so important on so many different levels that we move from seeing the Holy Spirit as an abstract idea to person and a person that we are in relationship with. 
and that dwells within our, our lives and that draws us into the very life of the Holy Trinity. Otherwise, you know, again, we're, we're laboring under this illusion of our own strength and power, which eventually we're, we're going to collapse. We're not going to be able to love in this way. And so what we end up doing is domesticating the gospel uh, in order that we can, you know, have this comfort, this in internal image of being good people, of being Christian, of calling ourselves Christian. And we can't forget, you know, when we hear those passages about the Pharisees and scribes, you know, they've died, the Pharisees have died out, but they're pretty much alive in our own hearts and, and present. And uh, they kept this religious role very strictly, which is easy to do. We make a big deal about maintaining a prayer role, but th that's an easy thing to do in comparison to loving without any condition. And, uh, and Christ could see that there was a darkness in their heart, this lack of love for others, that they would take more, be more concerned about calling healing work on the Sabbath day than the fact that a paralytic was allowed to walk or a blind man was allowed to see. And so Jesus has, tells the people they are like whitewashed tombs. And back then, if you came into contact with a dead body, you would be made ritually unclean. And so you'd be cut off from the worship of the synagogue until you went through the rite of purification. And so Jesus is saying, if you come into contact with the scribes and the Pharisees, it's like coming into contact with a dead rotting body. You become un unclean from doing, doing so because it so distorts the image of God. What is being put forward is not the love of, of God. And it's as easy for us as Christian men and women to fall into that, not to live the life of the spirit uh, that is without boundaries or that has the boundaries of God himself and want to shrink that down into something that is safer, more manageable for us and seems you know, comfortable and allows us to remain in our comfort zone. There's nothing about the diaconate or the priesthood Tyler, I'm sad to say that it allows that. So often you, you feel very vulnerable or exposed. Uh, preaching a homily, I think I lost a year of my life for every, every one of those first ones uh, uh, that I preached early on. Uh, but, uh, but that's a good thing. I think the sooner that we're able to let go of the illusions of our own strength or our capacities and rely upon the grace of God, the better. Uh, Sue, did you have a comment? No? Okay. All right, so we're at a new section there on 55. We who art everywhere and fillest all things. Grace penetrates all things as they tremble and resonate and awaken in this tremendous breath of life. Like a tree in the wind with sweeping invisible strokes like the ocean with its thousands of smiling ripples, or the impulse that moves man and woman toward one another. Modern idiom tends to oppose spirit and matter, while a kind of pseudo-Platonism opposes the intelligible and the tangible. But the Holy Spirit, ruach in Hebrew, pneuma in Greek, and spiritus in Latin, is the breath 
the wind that blows where it wills and whose sound we hear, for it bears the word and within it the world itself, both visible and invisible. So if we cling to this abstract notion of the spirit or this very limited view and we don't take hold of what he describes here, I think poetically, he's a great writer, uh, in the words ruach, pneuma, and spiritus, that something that is like the, the movement of the ocean or like the wind and that it do, it is, there is something that we hear within it. It is the word of God, uh, but that again speaks to the very depths of our being. And I'll bring this up once again, a Carthusian who said that uh, silence allows God to speak a word that is equal to himself. And so this is why the saints uh, encourage the fostering and the love of silence because it allows us to listen on such a deep level for this word that is communicated in and through the spirit of God that is like the, the ripples of the ocean or the wind through, through the trees. And it's a word that's spoken to each and every one of us uniquely, the word that we need to hear. So even when we hear the word of God proclaimed at liturgy, each individual is going to hear the word that God desires them to hear for their sanctification, for their healing. And, uh, but if we are, again, limited to our own notions uh, and our own private judgment about the meaning of these things, and if we have not purified our heart, it's always going to be heard through this filter, again, of the noise of the world or the noise of our own own thoughts. We're never, going to, we're never going to be able to hear this still small voice uh, that speaks to us in the depths of our hearts. And so we were talking last night, I think it was, was it Sue or Daniel that brought up the radio in the car of turning it off, uh, Daniel, uh, that how important something like that can be. At first it may seem a little uncomfortable because we're used to filling that silence with something as we're traveling a distance, especially if it's some greater distance. Whereas to turn the radio off and to become comfortable with the silence opens us up to the working and the action of the spirit within our hearts. And the same thing goes for turning off the computer and turning off the television. And the more that we taste the sweetness of that, the more we begin to crave it and the setting aside of those things no longer becomes an obstacle to us. We never even have the temptation to turn on the radio in the car. That's right. Right. And most often the nonsense are our, is our own thoughts. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, the absurdity, the bizarre nature of this. You know, we've talked about this with 40,000 thoughts that we average a day. And you think about what that must look like. If we could perceive that, and if all those thoughts were written down, we'd probably think, oh my goodness, where did that come, come from? 
Uh, but it is, you know, it's not only the noise of the world, but it's the noise within our own minds and our hearts that we are called to still. And this is why we find in the Eastern tradition the focus on a more non-discursive kind of meditation where something like the intellect, the imagination is stilled. And one would make the use of an arrow prayer, a prayer like the Jesus prayer, simply to move from multiplicity of thought to simplicity into greater and greater silence in order that we might listen to what God is saying to us. That no matter how great our understanding of something might be, uh, or of the scriptures or of some theological point, it's not going to be equal to God. And so there's a point in our spiritual life where we have to let go of what has perhaps served us very well over the course of time, meditating upon the stories in the, from the scriptures of Christ's life or from the saint's life and uh, or engaging in a kind of Lexio Divina, meditating on the passion itself, the stations of the cross, beautiful. And you think how many people have, has, has that had an impact over the course of the ages? But the saints, one and all, say, that there's this movement that takes place in the spiritual life where one has to let go of the lesser in order to take hold of what is greater. That our intellect, our reason, imagination only can take us so far and then it breaks down. And God, when he wants to draw <coughs> us along further into intimacy with him, has us walk in the dark obscurity of faith. And that can be really frightening. John the Cross describes it as a ligature when we make a movement to you know, the beginning stages, the purgative stages of the spiritual life, even to a prayer of the quiet, that it can feel like the breaking of a bone because we're letting go of what have, have, has served us well, but also of what has been a crutch for us. You know? And we fear taking that step into the darkness and allowing God to provide the necessary light for one step at a time. So letting go of our hold on things that are familiar to allow ourselves to be drawn along into the mystery of God himself. And again, this is why it becomes important for us to, to see the, present, the, the presence of the Spirit permeating our minds and our hearts so deeply that we're not led, left without a guide or without light. We bear it with, within us and we have to abandon ourselves to that reality. Yes. I think sometimes it's easier, or it seems easier, um, when you're in those like beginning stages of the spiritual life, when you're trying to de determine, um, you know, a, a voice of God from the voice of the devil. You know, when it's like a strong temptation, right? It's easy to say, "Oh, that's the demonic," mm -hmm. right? Uh, you know, that's something trying to draw me back mm -hmm. into to a to a, a really bad sin. But then when you're, I'm not saying I'm, you know. I'm just saying that when you move along and you're trying to determine, well, is this my voice or is it the voice of a temptation? Sometimes you're, you know, smattered with all those little bits. So right. like, I, I, I don't know what you're supposed to do, but I find myself even just ignoring anything that doesn't bring me total peace and keep me in the moment. Because sometimes you're like, well, if it is me, or maybe that's God giving me a little tip, but I'm like, these tips are <laughs> annoying. Like, and if anything's annoying me, like I just need to ignore that yeah. tip. You know, like it really, like when you're, you're just getting right. information everywhere. Yeah. 
Well, my tip for you <laughs> is to let go of the tip. Let go of the tip, yeah. And to allow yourself simply to focus upon God Himself. And to trust that what is revealed in that silence is what is needed. And we might not grasp it, but at the time that we are called to take hold of whatever God puts before us, we are given the strength and the light to embrace it. And it's very difficult because even our virtues have to be transformed by the grace of God and perfected. And the evil one, being unresting, will even take what is good and seek to distort it in one way or another, or to make us feel prideful about, you know, God said to me, yeah. you know, wear this blue shirt today. Yeah. And, and <laughs> you know, it can become, reach this level of absurdity. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, and so things are to be put to the test. And the silence tests them the most. I think spiritual direction, you know, it's a confession, staying close to the sacraments, waiting upon God and allowing him to reveal what's true about that. Because sometimes the thing that comes to mind, you know, that seems like intuition or seems like the right path, again, can be the, the temptation of the evil one. You know, to put a thought before us that seems you know, very po positive. And, you know, he'll do this to priests at times. It always drives me nuts when I hear a priest walk up to somebody you're gonna, you should be a priest, you should be a nun. And I just wanna scream. It's like, you, you have no knowledge of that person or what is within their heart. What are you doing? You're telling them their vocation and what path to, to walk when, well, yeah, that's right. That's right, yeah, I have that MDiv. I could, I could diagnose, I could see, yeah, that's right. You manifest all the indications of having a vocation. Uh, it can become absurd. And we, we just don't find that in, uh, in the East. I think what we find, though, is the need to distrust the thoughts. Uh, not to demonize them, but to realize that because of our sin, that they, they're a vulnerable spot for us that we are often driven by our passions, our desires for self-fulfillment rather than being led by the love of God. And so again, this notion of Paul, we take every thought captive. And this is what that simple prayer is doing. It's directing our, our love toward God. So much so that some of the modern elders will say, leave sin alone. Like don't get in fisticuffs with it. Don't, you know, try to argue with the demon because you're going to lose no matter what. So the best thing to do is to take up the Jesus prayer and then gently move the mind and the heart toward God. And because once you're locked in that battle, you've lost. And I get it. You know, I think they're, they're, right, they're right on the mark with that because, you know, when they went to the desert, they saw in a refined way how the, the human mind and heart works. And we have almost this infinite capacity for self-deceit. Mm -hmm. And when we think that we've overcome a certain passion, uh, it's just the evil one setting us up. So you, you remember the stories of monks, you know, being in the desert for years and you know, feeling a kind of freedom from the passion of anger, and then tripping over a rock <laughs> or uh, a piece of wood and <clears throat> You know, why does that, you know, wood, you know, a piece of wood have to be there? <laughs> so we're, you know, 
capable of being led astray in a multitude of ways. So humility, uh, truthful living, is to cling to God and God alone and to what he's given us. And again, that should bring us the greatest peace. If we know that we have the spirit of God within us, we can rest in that spirit and begin to experience something of the peace of the kingdom. We're, all, we're very much about activity, being about things, creating things. I often like to joke about, you know, celebrate peace in the West. They're probably the reason that we have all these big churches that we do because it's sublimation. We've got to be builders. You've got to direct all that energy that you've set aside from not getting married and having children. And so you sublimate it in all the, it could be really in terrible directions too. Sublimation is typically a positive thing where energy is directed, not even in a conscious way, but to creating something that's good. And, but so often that doesn't mean that it's from God. It can be from an internal emotional drive. I need to build something for identity. And so you often come across priests that are the, of, the of the creative type and have multiple projects, one after another, and they finish one, and they pass off the work of it to another, and they move on to another project. And not to criticize them, because often it bears great fruit, but we, we have to be uh, cautious of that. What, what is it we are building? And is it really something that endures? And do we realize that it can disappear in a blink of an eye? You know, Lori's a member of this parish. And, you know, back in, you know, the 50s, Duquesne City had, I think it was 15,000 people crammed into this little town. And uh, uh, the hillsides parked, marked with all of these ethnic clubs you drive by. I used to love those places when I was grown up. French club was my hangout. But you see them and they're all boarded up. And this church seats 900 people. It's the largest church in the entire archeparchy of Pittsburgh. So it tells you sort of what Duquesne was once until the mills shut down. And then it's about probably a 10th of the population here. And all those who worked and built this church are, you know, have passed away or moved away. And that's part of the reality of life. Nothing in this world endures. It all turns to dust. And so we cannot give this excessive value to the things of this world when we have what is eternal within our own hearts. It's only when we lose sight of that that we become driven to pursue all these things in, in the world, even within the church, to make us feel that we're doing something important. Most of the programs, uh, book studies, we don't need more books. We don't need somebody to publish another book. We have enough. And we don't even pay attention to the really wonderful ones, anyways, uh, written by the saints. But, you know, so often, you know, dioceses or priests will come up with a program to try to revitalize the life of the parish. But it's a really worldly way of thinking about things. And it's often repackaged. The same groups that were taught in the 70s are repackaged and given a different name now in the 2020s. 
but they're not all that different, but often neglect what is most essential and life-giving, liturgy, the places where we encounter the Spirit in this most radical way, fostering a depth of prayer, a love of the fathers, a love of the scriptures, that all of these things are overlooked. And when you go through a program, you can complete that program. Or you could get a certificate, even better, that you completed this program within the church. And, you know, I don't want to be, have it come off being mockery. But I think we've gone down that path so many times, you think something would make us question, why are we doing that? And what, what fruit comes of it? And what, what is God really asking from us living in a, a world that has become hostile to Christianity as a whole? Well, I think that answers your question as far as, like, we need to, we'll, we'll do a lot of, I mean, and there, there's a lot of great, great folks out there mm-hmm. that are, they, you know, very kindly, but I think we, it's, it's easy to fall into that because we don't want to be quiet. Right. You know? find every excuse to distract ourselves and not pray or not not be quiet. So I think, you know, right. It's it's scary to be quiet. Right. It is. To be left with oneself and one's own thoughts. Okay, we're moving on. In Semitic languages, the word ruach is sometimes masculine and sometimes feminine. We would not want to reduce the Trinity or naturalize it into some sort of familial construct, father, mother, son, but we must recognize the confused expressions of our language, the virile nature of the fire of the spirit and the feminine character of the still small voice, like a mother humming her child to sleep. Perhaps here again, a sense for the mysterious wisdom present throughout the last books of the Old Testament, reminding us that God is Rahamim, the emphatic plural from Rahem, which means womb. And, you know, often in our, again, in our day and age, you know, there's this dispute about words and how words are used, but we often neglect, uh, it goes to the absurd. Whereas what is, uh, because people will push this, with uh, being, being driven by, you know, uh, a philosophical idea that they want to change the way that we speak about God, when in reality it's already sort of built in, is what Clement is telling us here, that the very words that are used for the spirit contain these masculine and feminine qualities. And the last one, the emphatic plural of womb, is, I think, the most powerful image. And I think it's what drives us so much, and perhaps most of all, in, uh, even in our destructive tendencies as human beings. We have this experience of being in the womb, of being one with the other. You've probably heard the phrase, mommy and I are one, mommy and me are one, and there's truth to that. There is no separation that is experienced there until there's a kind of individuation that takes place over the course of time, and it's usually the presence of the father and that third 
that allows that to take place, or a male figure uh, that opens the child to experience of reality. But you know, our relationship with God is something that allows us to deal with the ever-present and forever-present yearning that we experience for unity and communion that is very part of our existence. We come into being from another individual, from mother, who has borne us in her very womb. And uh, this is what Clement is saying, that this is our experience and should be our experience of the Holy Spirit, of being wrapped and embraced in a womb-like way in the love, love of God. And again, this would be another reason why comforter would be the more profound definition of, of paraclete as well, that uh, we have this yearning within us. And you know, without our identity being rooted in something greater, uh, in this understanding of our relationship with God, who's the source of our life, one, one more thought, um, that we are often driven by what Sigmund Freud called the death drive. And it never got very much traction in his day because I think people could not understand it. But what he says is that there can be this movement within us that moves towards that which is destructive to dismantle that which is around us, but that is driven more by this longing to get back to that original state that finds this reality in which we exist, where we experience this profound isolation, not only from others, but from ourselves, can lead then to this movement toward destruction. We will often uh, purposely, or I can't say purposely, unconsciously, move to undermine our own lives, do these destructive things that even in our mind, if we would slow things down, we would know what we're doing. And yet we can be driven to do that. And I think the more that we move away from God, the greater that tendency becomes. Because what in this world can give us that identity of being wrapped in life? There's nothing. There's no person, there's nothing we could accomplish and achieve in this life that gives us the experience that only God, who's made us for himself, who's created us in such a way that we only find uh, fullness in him. And other groups I've mentioned the word desire, uh, desideratum means sense of lack or sense of incompleteness, that God has created us with a desire that only he could fulfill. So we have within us an infinite desire for love. And that God is calling, you know, he gives us what is necessary to fill it. And we often will be searching for it in the world desperately. And over and over again, what we meet with is this disheartening experience of reality, that nothing can do that for us. Even if on a surface level it is, or not even just on a surface level, that it is good, that, or that provides great joy to our life, it cannot be God for us. 
Our spouses cannot be our God. Again, nothing that we, you know, you ever hear people who when they finish writing their dissertation and they get their doctorate and then they fall into a state of depression. <laughs> it's the first thing, they accomplish this great goal that they've been working for you know, all these years and they find out, oh my goodness, uh, it, it doesn't change anything. You know, I'm not, because I have PhD after my name or I've accomplished this thing that might be very good, it does not satisfy this need that we have for identity that only God can give us. And uh, so, any yeah. thoughts or questions? Mm -hmm. I've always found that concept really amazing because on the surface you would think this destructive or death drive would be self-hatred, mm -hmm. you know? But, um, but the fact that it's in the most condensed form, it's said that it's, uh, that it's the product of a tortured self-love. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting right. that it's just like the one turned in upon itself wanting so desperately to see goodness and mm -hmm. perfection and all these things and being unable to find it, it destroys itself because it can't bear to remain in existence right. in this imperfect way. Like right. it's, if, you, if you just hated yourself, then you wouldn't care mm -hmm. what your state was or right. how you were. Like it wouldn't matter. Mm -hmm. Like how often do you care about the state mm -hmm. or the life of someone you hate? Mm -hmm. It like. They can do whatever they want for all right. I care. Right. You know, <laughs> like, but if you love someone, you're like desperately desire the good and and right. perfection and all of these good things and and the less and it can right. lead to this kind of madness. You yeah, know? but you see, yeah. Oh, that's right. It's it's consuming. This kind of self-hatred or this destructive kind of drive is consuming the culture as a whole. And things are beginning to break down at a frightening pace. And so I, I understand why people get agitated when they watch the news because it is, it is terrifying. Uh, you know, our hope rests though in something far greater. You know, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more that God is in the midst of this and sees it and, but it shows us, I think, what we need to be. You know, if we are those who bear the spirit of love within us, uh, that, that love that gives us identity and hope and joy, then that is what we are to be for others. And if we have this sense, the way that we would engage others would radically change too. The, a lot of writers and some, some of these great saints sometimes will say gentleness is the most important virtue or attentiveness. You think, where does that, that come from? You know, but it is often you know, the gentle touch or the gentle word of another that can instill hope in, in another, especially if it is, arises out of this love of Christ. And now we don't even look at each other because we're looking at our phones or we're trying to avoid eye contact because we're, if we make eye contact, we might get smacked down. What are you looking at? You know, it's, you can't even say hello to anyone anymore. And uh, we can't let ourselves go that way. I think that we're, there has to be this willingness to step towards others, not with, you know, driven by this kind of self-hatred or hopelessness, but with the love and the hope that Christ gives us. <clears throat>
say, how many times have I desired to gather you like a mother hen? Right. And at the same time, mm-hmm. you see him command, like, to distill the waters, right? Mm-hmm. You see him to, um, com- you know, command Lazarus back to life. Right. Not, like, I guess you could say it's comforting, but that's not like still whatever. It's more like he weeps outside Lazarus' mm-hmm. tomb, but then he, like, gives, at least when Right. That's right. From what this sounds like when you think about it from both angles, yeah. and then also when you think of that in the light of Scripture. And yet, like uh, gentleness, though, gentleness doesn't, I mean, it it shows strength, right, so much more. Like, it's the, it's the weak parent who berates and beats their child. Like, that's not a strong parent. There's a sure. massive weakness there, right? And so all of these times when he's even commanding, like, He's commanding the little girl to come back, to, to arise. He's commanding Lazarus to come out. But those are all, like, those are all still displays of gentleness. None of them are, like, and it's sort of like what he says about the Holy Spirit on page 53, where he's talking about the Spirit as king. And he says, he governs, meaning that he serves. Isn't that interesting? Like, like right there in the same sentence, like he governs, meaning that he serves, and like that's the actual meaning of the government itself. Yeah, I guess I'd only say to that though that like because the example of parents and stuff and everything too, and you said how like mommy and I are one, and usually then it's like dad who's in the picture, then who's the one who's going no. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, no more, right? Like that's not happening yeah. type of thing. So yeah. obviously. But that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that that strong person, too, is usually dad. I just mean, like, in terms of, like, the thought process. But we have someone's coming over to, like, bully their kids, like, back off. You know what I mean? So, like, but, but, the, but so anyways, my only thing was that it's funny how both those qualities can exist. They're directed towards different ends. And it right. seems to me that, like, I think I think often you know the the no of the father is simply the, the uh, it's not telling the child to do it's just his presence and so this is why why any like male figure can 
play that role even if there is an absent father, is that there's a third there that helps the child then to step out of this radical communion to develop an individual identity. And the presence of the other, the father, is the no to this oneness. You have to enter into the world. And it's often, uh, this is how our, our vision of reality is shaped as well as morality. But it isn't necessarily tied to strict, you know, over strictness. I don't want to have that be, be taken the wrong way. But one of the things, well, you're talking, don't take, you're taking us backwards, page 53. <laughs> we're, all, we're having our time getting, moving forward. Don't go back. Uh, but, you know, Cardinal Newman was the, the greatest, and I think I can say this, the greatest theologian and probably uh, church historian of the 19th century. And I think he'll be made a doctor of the church one of these days, St. John Henry Newman, a convert uh, to Catholicism uh, in England. And uh, brilliant man and uh, brilliant writer. But he said at one point that it is as absurd to try to argue a person into the faith as it is to try to torture them into the faith. The faith is a gift. And so all that we do online, you know, all these battles that we have with each other uh, about these things, I think would be completely foreign to him, especially the aggression behind it, because it it's so contrary to vision of faith and how we engage each other. He was a very sensitive soul, and so even when he had to write directly, there was this thoughtfulness and tenderness to it. And, uh, and so, you know, to, to be able to move away from that and to trust that, again, it's the spirit of truth that it dwells within us and blows where it wills and reveals and should reveal in the way that we live our life. Uh, even if the gospels were lost, they, people should be able to see in the way that we live our life, you know, the fullness of it and of who, of who Christ is. And again, I, there is this kind of defense, I think, when we intellectualize things and try to make it controllable, you know, understandable, we're trying to shrink it down uh, to something that we, we are more comfortable with. But we aren't meant to be comfortable. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Anybody remember where that's from in the scriptures? It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That to fall into the hands of the living God is to fall into infinite love. And uh, there is a, something that is going to be, be create a, a, an ecstasy, pull us out of ourselves. And so it can be a fearful thing to be confronted with a love that knows no limits. And, uh, you know, this is what was so terrifying, I think, about Christ. You know, he was breaking down all these boundaries about the law that gave people all this comfort and the things that he was saying. And then certainly this image of the Messiah, one who was not going to conquer with the sword, but was going to die, that his throne would be the cross and his crown would be the crown of thorns. And, uh, and what he would nourish them with would not be you know, the bread that they were hungering for in the desert, but upon himself, that he would be the bread of life. 
And uh, even as Christians and men and women of faith, we often will move away from that, uh, to, uh, from truly living in it to that which is more comfortable in our own mind, even if it is just pushing our faith out to the margin and thinking about it only at times when we direct, you know, consciously direct our mind there. Okay. Where are we? Did we, fin we have one more paragraph? And St. Maximus. We'll just finish this one little section here. St. Maximus the Confessor evokes the presence of the Holy Spirit in the very existence of the world, in beings and in things that are all logoi, or of the logos, words addressed to us by God. In his epistle to the Ephesians, Paul speaks of God as being above all and through all and in all. It is true that the Father is always the transcendent God, the principle of all reality. The Word is the Logos who orders the world through his creative ideas, will. The Spirit is truly God in, in all things, enlivening and leading all things to their ultimate fulfillment in beauty. He is winged God, so represented through the symbols of movement and flight, the wind, a bird, the living water, yet not earth, but rather he who makes the earth into a sacrament. So, you know, the spirit is this active presence that draws us into this, uh, what, what is living, what is not static, uh, so that our experience of God would remain what it was meant to be in and through the incarnation, that our under, God draws back the veil, Ray Villari, he pulls back the veil completely in order that we might encounter him. And you know, our tendency is rather, even though we've had that become ever so real and present to us, is to pull that veil back over into something that is, much, again, much more comfortable for us, uh, rather than allowing ourselves to be drawn along where the spirit wills and where he shows us. So, I have 11.30, what is our next? Okay, so six hours at noon. Okay. And then right after six hours, we'll do lunch, sounds good. Mm -hmm. And then the next conference. Okay, should we stop here or move on a little bit? It's 11.30, how are people feeling? Need a little break? I, no? Keep going a little bit? Okay, I've, I've seen some eyes rolling back in the head a few times, so. Okay. <laughs> Okay, good, all right. So we'll move on a little bit and then before we go for prayer. Treasury of blessings and giver of life. The word blessings, just like the word good at the end of this prayer, has an ontological meaning that has to do with being or love, as it were, for God is love, as St. John says. Thus being is a nothing other than the depth and inexhaustible substance of this love. One might say that being is relational and akin to the inwardness and the radiance of communion. Thus the blessing that the Spirit imparts, those of which he is the treasury, meaning the locus of giving and dissemination, are grace, the life of resurrection, and the light of life, again, St. John says. The Holy Spirit becomes within us all 
that the scriptures say concerning the kingdom of God, the pearl, a grain of mustard seed, leaven, water, fire, the bread, the draft of life, the wedding chamber. So the Holy Spirit becomes the kingdom within us. And all that Christ speaks of, all that he promises us, all that he tells us about our identity in him is to be found in and through the action of the Spirit within our hearts. This is why, again, we, we do not need to be going to any particular place. Again, even the monks of the desert would say this. You know, you don't have to be wearing a black robe. You don't have to go to Egypt or to the northern Thurbaid to experience this. And we've, we've done this weird thing, this bifurcation of Christianity, the professional religious and then the second tier Christians, which is everybody living in the world. And, uh, and so we've lost sight of this sense of universal holiness. By virtue of our baptism, we've been drawn into the life of God. And so often I think the way that we've taught the faith is that there are particular people that live a life of prayer and of seeking sanctity. And there are all those who are living and doing this practical life work in the world, but don't have the time to do what the religious does. And so we're woefully lacking in our understanding of the sanctity of those who live in the world, even though it's perfectly present, you know, in the things that are done and asked, the love of a mother for her child. And, you know, I've heard one of these elders say, I might say 2,000, 3,000 Jesus prayers in the course of a day or afternoon. A mother might squeeze out two in the day as she's, you know, asking God for help changing the sixth poopy diaper or whatever it might be, that uh, to find the strength and the grace that's needed. But the, the faith that is present there is as deep as the faith of that monk in the desert and is needed in order to help the person to love as God loves in the circumstances in which they find themselves in their marriage and parenthood or simply living in the world bearing witness to this. And all of this requires uh, a real relationship with God. It can't, again, be something within our mind. And that's exactly what, it, what we've made it become. Or these, again, episodes where people go, it's like plugging in the electric cars. You know, we go to mass on the weekend, plug in, and then go, go about our week. And uh, there's a Polish priest at one of my par sister's parishes who said, you know, the Eucharist is not fast food. It's not like going through the drive-through at McDonald's, you know, that how you enter into this is to be reflective of what you believe. And uh, I think we've moved, especially in the West, to a kind of minimalist approach to that that is reflective of where our, our faith is. We want, it, it cannot be longer than an hour. Better if, if it's 50 minutes. And... Uh, uh, but the idea that that would be heaven for us, that that experience would be something that brings us the greatest joy, often seems strange to us. And I've mentioned Newman, Newman here, but when he was asked what would heaven be like, he said, well, it would be like Eucharistic adoration. 
And everyone that I've ever said that to says, oh my gosh, that's terrible. <laughs> that would be so boring, you know, because I think often, and again, entering into that silence that allows for this deep intimacy. Like, again, husband and wife who've been married for years and know each other, they can sit on a couch and not have to say a word to each other. And that silence doesn't bother them because they know of the love of, of the other. And, uh, and there can be these subtle expressions of love and intimacy that take place throughout the course of the day. But you know, in our relationship with God, if it lacks this investment of the self and we do not see the things that we're reading about here and have not sought to enter into them, then our experience of going to mass can become, or divine liturgy, utilitarian. You know, we're going to fulfill some sense of obligation and to receive something that we have a sense is important to us, but don't really understand what it is that we are being drawn into. And, you know, the church has tried to speak of this, you know, universal call to holiness, but again, we, we have not done a very good job in doing so. And I think this is why reading the fathers or reading somebody like Clement is important. And it's always surprising, I think, in the groups when we hear, you know, St. Nicodemus of the Holy Mountain, who was one of the compilers of the Philokalia, this compendium of the fathers, speaks of this not being compiled only for the monks. Again, not for only for those in black robes but the best and the beautiful is meant for all. And we hide it away, which it was, you know, gathering dust and being eaten by moths in these uh, libraries on Mount Athos until somebody discovers them and says, oh my goodness, we should put these together and collect them into a book. And, uh, but we often do that. I still hear priests today say, ah, the Philokalia is meant for, you know, somebody only if you have a spiritual director, a spiritual elder, and it's too complicated, you'll never understand it. It's nonsense. You know, you're, you're trying to tell people, be lazy or be inattentive to your spiritual life, and you're depriving them of the most nourishing spiritual writings that we have to offer. And uh, so don't let anybody ever say that to you, uh, because it's precisely in these things that what needs to be enlivened is enlivened. That often the heart is warmed through reading uh, the fathers or reading the scriptures in such a way that prayer then emerges, even if it's a paragraph a day, be, be re reading it uh, in order that you, you might warm this heart, in order that you can enter more and more deeply into prayer and open yourself to the action of the Holy Spirit. This is why the text of this prayer qualifies the word blessings, which might be thought of as something static with the word life. The spirit, as the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed says, is the giver of life. Whenever we speak of the spirit, life seems to be the key word. In Greek, there are two distinct terms, bios, in reference to biological life, and zoe, in reference to the spiritual life, or perhaps more along the lines of foundation and fulfillment through the resurrected life in Christ. 
And yet it is perhaps best if we do not distinguish too sharply between the two, but regard them as ever increasing degrees and intensity. Every living thing is moved by the divine breath. And so it is with this invisible framework that is in constant motion and causes the universal tendency towards dissolution, chaos, and entropy to be turned back into a reintegration, a more and more refined complexity in such a way that life is continually born out of death. So you see, it's this action of the spirit that keeps us from moving to what we were talking about early, toward death towards that which is destructive. It's the allowing this life of the spirit to guide and to fill us that we are moved on more and more towards the resurrected life. The great physician once said that the world is flowing with intelligence. The spirit is present and active in every living thing from the cell stage to mystical union through the great movement of eros that touches and intensifies every existence and through man leads all towards grace, towards agape, which we talked about in the gospel uh, in today's liturgy. So this spirit is not static, it's not passive, but ever active at every single moment in our life. Everything that takes place in our life, we are sustained in being. Every movement from here to there is something that is guided and directed by the Spirit. And ultimately, what we are being guided to is agape, to enter into this unconditional love, a love that knows no restraint. And yet, while we can say that all life within the world is sustained by the Spirit, by his energy that has long remained and often still is anonymous, this life is still linked to death. But ever since Christ's resurrection, the personal source of this spirit is henceforth revealed, or rather hidden revealed, which may serve as a definition of the sacrament, or it would already be the parousia. So what he's saying here is that the spirit action, acts in a hidden way, even while revealing all these truths to us in and through the sacramental life, we come to experience this divine love. If we were to encounter it outside of that, the parousia would already exist. Then we would be in this radical union. All things would be consummated in God. There would be no need for the sacraments any longer. So it's the spirit that uh, allows this to unfold for us. Nevertheless, in the Eucharistic chalice, the spirit imparts a pure life, one that assumes death, and one might say turns it back. Thus every partial death, the inevitable stigma of our existence, and ultimately our biological death are henceforth pascas, or passages of initiation. It is the veil of love slowly torn asunder, Death in its fullest meaning, that is both physical and spiritual, is in a sense already past, shrouded in the waters of our baptism, or perhaps also in desire, in tears, and in blood. The ultimate stage of our existence is no longer death, but the spirit. And if we pay close attention to this presence, if we seek it out down to its greatest depths of silence, of peace, and of light, 
then the anguish within us is turned to trust and our tears become a wedding garment, the robe of the beggar who purely by grace is invited to the feast. So we experience death within this world, but because of what Christ has done and because of this, the spirit being poured out upon us, every one of these little deaths and ultimately our death at the end of our life uh, is experienced now as Pascha, not the end, but the opening up to the fullness of life. And in many ways, I think this changes the, the way that we experience the little deaths that we experience in our day-to-day -day life. Often we resent them and we hate them when our life is turned upside down and falls out of control. Uh, to be able to see within those what seems to be a dying of something good in our life as rather something emerging. That God is already there, Christ is present, we don't experience that in isolation, the spirit permeates it. And so even if it's a dying to something within us or for us, it's already leading us into something that is far greater. And he mentions baptism here. And one of the things that is most joyous for a priest to do is to baptize an infant because it's to be able to give the only gift that is equal to the love that the mother has for the child. It's, it's because it's to give God. And it's the most beautiful gift that a parent could give their child is to have them baptized, which uh, Sebastian is being baptized of, on all, all the great days, Pentecost. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, so it's the, the most precious thing to give. And at that point, when we're baptized, we become heirs to the kingdom of heaven, sons and daughters of God. We have access to the treasure house of God's grace and all that the church, his body, has to offer us. And I know this might sound a little heretical, but there should be the sense when we baptize a child because of what they become at that moment to almost to kneel down before them because of what they become at that moment. God bears you know, the temples of the Holy Spirit and in a holy unmarred way too. If we could catch with a glimpse of faith in that moment, what that child becomes by that gift, then we would be overwhelmed by the beauty, beauty of it. Isn't that beautiful? I yep. always, I always, yeah, I just kind of thought that was neat. <laughs> That's great. I, I never heard that. It's so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> emergency Kleenex, emergency Kleenex. <laughs> okay, I lost my place. <laughs> this, this, uh, the spirit is also the hidden Okay. The spirit is also the hidden God, the secret and interior God, the tra a transcendence identified with the very root of our being. 
He is the welling up within our hearts that becomes a testimony, enabling us to say that Christ is the Lord and to whisper with him and in him, Abba, Father, a word full of tenderness, trust, and respect. The Spirit kindles our hearts, revealing within us the eye of the heart, the eye of fire that discloses in each of us the image of God and in all things the burning bush of the coming Christ, the eye through which I see God and the eye through which God sees me are one in the same eye, says Meister Eckhart. And this one eye is the spirit of Christ who is truly God and truly man. The prison of time and space is weakening. We find ourselves breathing more deeply with an overwhelming joy. We are breathing the spirit and the admirable words of St. Gregory of Sinai, thus becoming progressively separated from all and united to all, we truly begin to love with a love that is neither about loss nor about acquisition. It's a love that only knows fullness. And if you noticed here at the top of the page, he mentions eye of the heart. And for those who've been participating in the Philokalia book studies. We talk about this often because it's at the heart of the Eastern spirituality, the noose, the eye of the heart, the eye of the soul, uh, that purified by the grace of God and through the ascetic life allows us to comprehend, to see, to experience the things of God. And so what Clement puts in this ever so beautiful way is that uh, the spirit acts in such a way that we are drawn deeper and deeper into this reality and re that reveals that which is the deepest part of us, the eye of the heart. Uh, a heart is almost used like unconscious would be in modern terms. So the deepest recesses of who we are as the human being, the fullest essence of who we are, the eye of the heart though, is what allows us to see God. And, but what is interesting is he quotes Meister Eckhart here, a Western uh, author who says, it is also the eye through which God sees me. They're one in the same eye. So we find ourselves spiritually, when we've opened ourselves to the action of the spirit, when we've purified our heart and that deepest part of it, the eye of the heart, is if we are gazing at God face to face. We're already experiencing what is promised to us in the kingdom when every tear will be wiped away and we will look upon God face to face. So it's not something out in this distant reality. And again, some abstract uh, thing that we are called to, but already, to already able to participate in by grace and the action of the spirit that dwells within us. That God has already made it possible for us to participate in the life of the Holy Trinity and to gaze upon him in an unimpeded way. And I think one of the reasons we don't pursue this is that we've never tasted the sweetness of it. If, you don't, if we don't remain long enough in the ascetic life, in the life of prayer, to taste something of it, there isn't that desire that wells up within us that he speaks of so often here 
uh, where we have a greater and greater longing for it and begin to search it out. Sort of uh, the images in the Song of Songs, you've heard them, uh, you know, of running out in the nights in search of my beloved. You know, this, we often find the contemplatives like John of the Cross using this imagery that this is what should be going on within the heart, that he could only capture in poetry what in reality uh, takes place deep within us, that human words really can't express the longing that comes over the human heart that has been uh, set afire by the, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. So again, you know, when we think about educating people in faith or seminary formation, what are, what are we focusing on? You know, it, are we focusing upon seeking to enter into this life? How does one bear witness to what one does not know, does, has no experiential knowledge of? Uh, you can't give what you don't have, is often uh, said. And so how do we give to others what we lack within ourselves? How do we speak of this beautiful love and this yearning for love if we've never tasted it ourselves? It become, they become empty words. And, you know, preachers in particular, you know, the, the depth of the prayer there, and I only say this because if one is going to speak to the, the depth of another person's religiosity, then it has to come from a place that is genuine. If people's eyes are rolling back in their head, or if your sermon leaves them, you know, cold, then you're probably, you know, what is the term, cold as a cucumber, or something <laughs> like that, then you're, you're probably about as interesting as one, you know. I think you like to kind of sell them something. The right, you know, that's, it's always a fearful thing to me, that as re religious as priests, we can become hucksters of, re of religion, used car salesmen. <laughs> and uh, it's a terrifying thing, because you know we come to stand before the judgment seat of God. And some, somehow religious hucksters, <laughs> I don't think are gonna be high up on the list there, but, <clears throat> okay. The eye of the heart, when it is opened by the spirit, discerns Christ as the latent root of every religion as well as every form of humanism and atheism, providentially rebelling against any number of caricatures of God. So, the eye of the heart is functioning in one way or another, in an incomplete way, in a distorted way, in atheism that denies the presence of God, or in the fullest capacity, that it allows us to see God as he's truly revealed himself to us, and then also to bear witness to it. So, you know, even the atheist has this. It's just that for one reason or another, and there are practical atheists as well, who. You know, we call ourselves Christians often, but uh, for the same reason, the eye of the heart has been so distorted that the vision of God is, dis is distorted as well, a caricature of God. I think it was uh, Fulton Sheen that says, you know, what people are rejecting most of the time is not Christianity. It's a false vision, false version of it that they should be rejecting, something you know, something that's been created and the, the worst kind of distortion. 
Yes. Like hidden and not fully manifest okay. in a conscious way that it is there active and affecting behavior. So a late and non root. Where is that again? Okay, let me read the sentence again. The eye of the heart, when it is opened by the spirit, discerns Christ as the latent root of every religion. So hi hidden root of all things, even the distorted views of religion or the multiplicity of religion, what is behind that is Christ. He owes truth. It's just that, you know, the, the sin of the world has distorted that and turned it into a, a multiplicity of views and beliefs. And it's the purity of heart, though, and the eye of the heart that allows us to see the, the beauty unencumbered without any impediment. And this is why we find it emphasized in the Father so much. It's the immediate goal of the spiritual life, purity of heart, purifying of the noose. Kind of a cool example of that, and I've never heard this before, and I loved it. But you know how like we have, you know, which is just so amazing to me. I'm like, no one's forcing you to celebrate Christmas or Easter. Like, if you want to celebrate the winter solstice and the spring festival, like, just celebrate them. Like, no one, <coughs> like, if you want to say that Christians impose holidays on pre-existing high days, like holy days, then just celebrate the holy days we imposed ourselves on. Like, no one's forcing you to be a Christian. Like, mm -hmm. it drives me crazy. I'm like, just go with the naturalists and go celebrate right. the solstice. Like, I don't <laughs> care. But I heard this really amazing thing that was like, why, like, I, I don't remember who wrote it, but it was like a really good source. And they said, like, why can't we understand the presence of major holy days in ancient religions that would end up corresponding to the highest and most holy days of Christianity as part of God's eternal plan for humanity? Like, God is eternal. His providence is eternal. His plan is eternal. Why wouldn't he, before the coming, uh, before the prophets in Judaism and before the coming of Christ, why wouldn't he have inspired people searching for him to establish holy days where they worshipped and prayed and celebrated on the days that he was going to make the most important days in the life of his own son? Like, why wouldn't he have done that? In fact, it would have been kind of weird if he hadn't. Like, <laughs> he was preparing a way so that when it, someone came to these people and said, this beautiful spring festival where everything comes back to life and it's sacred and holy, it is sacred and holy, and, like, it's even more sacred and holy than you already know. <laughs> like, and I just thought that was the coolest right. thing. I'm like, God prepared even human celebrations and feast days from right. the beginning of time. I thought that was like, I've never heard that. Yeah, it's, awesome. it's beautiful. And I think it sort of gets back to Daniel's thing about yeah. this latent mm -hmm. root yeah. that is present there and blossoms into the fullness of, of, of life. Mm -hmm. And why wouldn't we expect that? And, you know, the gospel again today with Peter, 
not being able to say, I love you, agape, you know, that uh, he's only to say, able to say it as friend. And yet there isn't in him, you know, this latent capacity that there's this, he's drawn to Christ. He sees the truth in him. Where are we to go? You have the words of everlasting life. And yet he had not witnessed the cross yet. And uh, it's then that what was latent can come into full life. At the heart, did I finish that paragraph? Mm -hmm. At the heart of this boundless church, of this. I thought you, well, that has the, the eye of the heart. Okay. The eye of the heart sees not only the church within the world, so often a pitiful sociological construct, but the world within the church a church without boundaries where the communion of saints extends to a communion with every great living being, creators of life, of justice, of beauty. So truth is the truth and uh, love is love and we often lose sight of that. Uh, I don't know what I was reading recently where someone was objecting to reading a particular author and I've gotten this tons of times, you know, while you're reading these Eastern Orthodox writers, or I get from the Eastern Orthodox will say to me, you're reading our, our saints. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> and, you know, so you think, where does that, where does that come from? You know, that tr truth should be something that we would want all people to, you know, read, and especially if we, we love it. But it is to be found, like, Having studied psychoanalysis, I, you know, I did find, you know, Freud saw a lot. We would say a big no to him in a lot of different areas if you were to immerse yourself in his writings. But he did see, you know, a lot that goes on within our heart and has become part of our common parlance, of our language. Anytime we talk about defense mechanisms, all that, all that's Freudian. So people who poo-poo Freud and say, you know, he you know, was this cocaine addict and knew nothing, he saw a lot. And psychoanalysis is this incredibly sharp toll. And he saw a lot about religion. He may have been an atheist, but he did see this thing about religion being an auxiliary construction. And for many people, it is exactly that, a psychological construct that is not rooted in experience of God but rather is something that the mind takes hold of to feel safe, to feel whole. And so, you know, sometimes truth isn't always going to come to us in a comfortable way. And so someone even like Freud could say something to us that is, we have to say, yes, you're right. Yeah. You saw a partial truth and it opens our eyes even wider that should allow us to enter into a greater conversion. We Christians should not be afraid of the truth. If truth is for us a person, even acknowledging the worst truths about ourselves or a truth that is revealed to us by somebody that we dislike or who is an atheist is something that should be embraced. I have to remind myself of that every time mm. I'm terrified that there really are aliens. <laughs> and I want to here, they will like destroy everything. I'm like, but if aliens exist, everything's a lie. No. <laughs> no. They're not aliens, they're d demons manifesting themselves. 
Everybody knows that. <laughs> the heart of this boundless church, of this boundless love, as the monk of the Eastern Church entitled his most beautiful work, we perceive and celebrate Mary, the mother of God, the one who, by receiving the Spirit in order to give birth to the Word, undid the tragedy of human freedom. For once our freedom welcomes the Spirit, he makes it free and fertile, giving it an infinite space for creation and molding it within eternity. This is why the Orthodox Church uses the same expression to describe both the Spirit and the Virgin. The Spirit is Panagion, all holy, and the Virgin is Panagia. Isn't that interesting? So that Mary opens us up in her yes in freedom to the embrace of that freedom in such a sense that allows us to experience this infinite space of life and creation and of eternity itself. You know, we, we don't simply venerate her, you know, uh, because she was Jesus' mom. You know, it's something far greater than that. I mean, it's true, but it, it's because of the depth of that faith and the, the uninhibited way in which the Spirit is able to act within her. It's a lovely line. Once our freedom welcomes the Spirit, He makes it free. Mm -hmm. It's like, Okay, folks, so why don't we close with the Our Father, and then we'll, for those who are able to stay, go up to the chapel for the sixth hour, and I will close right here. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. And I want to go bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.